Thanks for joining us for Life Community Church. We are in a series called Encounter right now where we're looking at how people in the Bible encountered Jesus and what we can learn from them. Um, what we can learn um, from how they encountered Jesus, what they came away with Jesus, um, what they received from Jesus, and how we can receive those same things. We're back in Mark chapter 5 today. I have no slides for you today, just this one sad little slide. Um, so you're going to have to pull out your devices, your paper Bibles, um, and follow along with me there. But uh, we, we were in Mark chapter 5 a few weeks ago, if you remember. Um, it was the, the time when Jesus uh, went across the Sea of Galilee and cast out uh, some demons from this guy. Um, he, he just like freed this guy from oppression. And so we looked at how he went across the Sea of Galilee, which isn't really a sea at all. It's just a big lake. Um, and it was this place full of foreign people. They weren't Jewish. They weren't a part of Israel. They weren't like Jesus at all. And um, they were, in fact, citizens of Rome. And so they were effectively the, the representation of the enemy, the people that were oppressing the Jews at the time. That's who lived across the lake. And yet Jesus went over there. He, he sought out this guy and freed him from his oppression, his spiritual oppression. It was a cross-cultural mission. Jesus delivered his message, his good news of the kingdom of God. Come to earth, not just to his own people, but to people everywhere. This was one of the first instances we had where Jesus was going out to people who weren't Jewish and giving his light, giving his kingdom to people who were perceived as maybe the enemy to some people. Jesus' main point was that the kingdom is here, and it has no borders. He is for everyone. You know, at Life, we talk about the kingdom of God a lot. If you stick around Life for any period of time, you'll hear us say that maybe every Sunday, at least often. What exactly is it? What exactly is the kingdom of God? What did Jesus mean when he said that the kingdom of God is here? Of course, this could be a whole sermon series, and it probably will be someday. But imagine with me that you have a kingdom, okay? You are the ruler of your kingdom. Maybe some of you are already here and you think you already have a kingdom. Spouses, don't point fingers. We don't need to point fingers right now. Um, But maybe you can imagine your own kingdom and what would your kingdom be like? What would you have going on in your kingdom? If you're online, you can comment there what would be in your kingdom for me, first and foremost, I think is just what's in my heart is that donuts would no longer have calories. No more calories and donuts in my kingdom. Who wants to be in my kingdom? Huh? Anybody? Yeah. Oh, well, that's your kingdom, Greg. Cheesecake. No calories for cheesecake in Greg's kingdom. If you want to go be a part of his kingdom, you can go do that. I would also... Um, I would decide that the Bears win the Super Bowl at least 90% of the years. Um, You know, you got to have that 10%, so there's kind of some excitement there. They might lose. Uh, Los Zarapes right next door, the Mexican restaurant. That would be the national restaurant of my kingdom. And uh, as the king, I would eat there for free, of course. Um, Calories wouldn't count there either. Um, But I'm glad we don't live in my kingdom. I have a superficial kingdom kingdom of just selfish desires. When Jesus talks about God's kingdom, he's saying that the things that God cares about, the things that are close to his heart, 
are about to happen on earth. You know, he says, he says that he's here to proclaim the good news to the poor. He, he's been sent to proclaim uh, good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for prisoners, to give the blind sight, to heal the lame, to oppress the free, to proclaim the Lord's favor. Those are the things in his heart. He's here to redeem and restore. He's forgiving people. He's renewing lives. He's restoring not just people, but also all of creation. So back to Mark 4 and 5. Mark 4 and 5, I believe, happen all in one day. Um, they could, there could be a break there. Uh, we don't really know, but I think it's all in one day. Um, and so Mark 4 and 5, Jesus starts that day out preaching about the kingdom of God. He's out in a boat. So there's so many people there. He's out in a boat uh, preaching to the shoreline, kind of a natural amp amphitheater there. And he's preaching about the kingdom of God. He then crosses the Sea of Galilee to, uh, to go heal this demon-possessed guy. And in the process, uh, there's a huge storm. And so he calms the storm. And then he frees an oppressed man of his demons, demonstrating God's kingdom, setting the oppressed free. And now he gets back in his boat, and this is where we are right now as he gets back in the boat. So this is Mark 5, 21. Mark 5, 21. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him, My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. So Jesus goes back to Capernaum, where he was greeted by a whole bunch of people. A crowd has gathered around along with the synagogue leader, Jairus. And he's, like, he's just got to push his way to the front of the crowd. Or maybe he was already on the shore waiting for Jesus. And so he's the first one there. Just some background for you. The synagogue, because this guy is a synagogue leader, the synagogue was a place where a lot of religious events happened. That was like the religious center of a smaller community. But it was also kind of a community center. Um, it was where they'd have, you know, town meetings. It was where... Uh, they even housed refugees that were fleeing from somewhere. They'd say, hey, you can stay in our synagogue. Um, they even housed just people who were traveling through. They would say, hey, you can stay here. It was their way of being hospitable. And so this guy, Jairus, he was the president of this town synagogue. This was a highly respected title to carry. And as a respected member of that town, he had something to lose by associating himself with this radical new teacher named Jesus. He was taking a risk by publicly showing his faith in Jesus. Um, Liz and I are, uh, we were ordained in the Vineyard Church of Baton Rouge. Um, and in, in the Vineyard, if you don't know the Vineyard, the Vineyard is a few thousand churches all throughout the world. And um, in the Vineyard, we have this saying, and it was said by this guy named John Wimber, who kind of started the Vineyard Movement back in the 80s. He says, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Faith is spelled R-I-S-K. You can't have faith without taking some risks. 
If we really truly have faith, it's going to involve some risks sometimes, often. And so, as you see, this guy Jairus, he's taking a risk by aligning himself with Jesus. He bows down before him in front of his whole town, saying that he, he's saying, Jesus, I believe you can heal my daughter. Now, that's not something that you would do to just any rabbi, any teacher. You would save that for maybe a governor, definitely kings. You wouldn't do that to just a, little, uh, a teacher who you've heard about. So he publicly demonstrates that he's on team Jesus. It was a risky move. In that risky moment of publicly declaring his faith in Jesus, he didn't fully understand who Jesus is. You know, even his own disciples, his closest friends, didn't yet fully understand. They didn't comprehend who Jesus was yet. And so if, if the disciples, Jesus' closest friends, didn't understand, then surely Jairus didn't. And I think that's something we can learn from. Because Jairus, there's a woman we'll read about in a minute here. Jesus' closest friends, they didn't fully understand who Jesus was, what he was going to do. That he was living a perfect life so that he could die a criminal's death in our place on the cross. He took the penalty for our sins, our wrongdoings on himself. But because he lived a perfect life, death couldn't hold him. And so three days after his death, he walked out of the grave conquering sin and death with and for you and me. So we can live life with Jesus starting now for all of eternity. And Jairus and the disciples, they didn't get that yet. But Jairus showed faith in Jesus. The disciples, Jesus' friends, showed faith in Jesus. And I don't think we have to fully understand 100% of the time Jesus and who he is to say yes to him, to put our faith in him. We don't have to understand perfectly a situation that we're going through to put our faith in Jesus. That's what faith is. I'll tell you, I fully don't understand Jesus all the time. I don't understand the mystery of the good news of his kingdom. It blows my mind. I don't fully understand it. I'm in these situations sometimes where I just say, Jesus, I don't understand, but I fully trust you. If you can't point back to a time in your life where you said yes to Jesus in that way, I want to invite you to do that today. It starts with just like a, a simple prayer of saying yes to him. And you can pray something like this. Jesus, in the best way that I know how, I say yes to you. I receive your forgiveness for me, and I want to live eternity with you. Starting today, I want to live that with you. And if you say that prayer, then you've got a place in heaven. Your sins are completely forgiven, just like that. That's putting your faith in Jesus. That's all it takes. Isn't that beautiful? It is the best decision I ever made. I know there are many people here that would say it's the best decision they ever made. If you say that prayer today, I would love to know. I would love for you to let me know. I'd love to be praying for you online. If you say, uh, if you, I'd love to be praying for you um, by name. If, you, if, you, uh, if you're online and you said that, let us know in the comments. We'd love to know. And so Jairus, he takes that, that risk, that faith, he puts his faith in Jesus. He bows at his feet and says, Jesus, I trust that you are who you say you are. Come, please heal my daughter. 
Um, yesterday was Liz's birthday. And yeah, woo, woo for Liz's birthday. Um, turned 27, is that what it is? Um, so some of you laughed, others of you like, yeah, she looks like she'd be 27. Uh, that's what I think. Um, so I'm a last-minute kind of person. Any, any other last-minute people? Oh, thank you. Thank you. I don't feel so, sh- so much shame anymore. I um, saw some spouses pointing, like, last-minute person right here. Uh, so I'm a last-minute person. I waited till the last minute to get Liz one of her gifts, all of her gifts. And I got to the store, and um, there was two of the... Th- I was going to get something, and there was only two left. So I was like, all right, sweet. Doesn't matter that I'm last-minute. Got what I wanted. I'm good. Um, Jairus seems to be this kind of last-minute person. This is what I would guess. He had clearly heard about Jesus before. He maybe even attended his teaching that morning. I would say that's pretty probable because it happened in his own town. There's this prominent teacher there. Um, but he, cho- he, he might have chosen in that moment not to go seek out Jesus. Maybe at that time his daughter wasn't all that sick, but she'd taken a turn for the worse, and his only hope now is Jesus. She is on the verge of death. This new rabbi, this teacher who wasn't all that famous yet, he heard he could restore people, bring healing to people. So putting his reputation and status on the line, he falls on his face in front of Jesus and he asks for help. And we can assume that Jesus says yes because then we read in verse 24, Jesus went with him and all the people followed, crowding around him. So Jesus, all, these, all this crowd, they're on their way to this guy's house to heal this little girl. And then this happens in verse 25. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them. But she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus So she came up behind him, threw the crowd, and touched his robe. She thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed from her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around to the crowd, and he said, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, Look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell on her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. We may look at this woman and say she has nothing to lose. She didn't really take a risk here. Unlike Jairus, he's got status and reputation on the line. What does she have? Um, She's already spent everything that she has. Um, But that's not true. That's not the case. This was incredibly taboo for her to be in a crowd like this. In that culture, uh, the religious laws that governed cleanliness in those times, were really important. And so if you touched someone or something that was unclean, you had to go through this whole ritual cleansing process. 
It wasn't, um, and it, it kind of uh, kept you from worshiping. Like you couldn't go to the temple and worship if you had touched something unclean. The idea here was that things from external things that touched you or came in contact with you made you unclean. But what Jesus says in um, Mark chapter 7, a little bit later, if you want to read that this week, is just like, the, it's, our, it's our hearts that make us unclean. It's our thoughts. It's the way that we choose to sin. It's not, it's not someone who is unclean or something that makes us unclean and unworthy to worship God. And so um, for her in that time, it was, it was really taboo because she was touching all of these people. It was a small town, probably a couple hundred people, and they all knew her. They knew her condition. And so as she was touching these people, they all had to go later and, and do this whole ritual cleansing process. She was just bringing tons of shame on herself for doing this. She had a lot to lose in this. Um, she should have been avoiding that crowd. She should have been telling everyone that she was unclean because of her condition. But Jesus heals her. This would be something like, uh, you know, if you had coronavirus, you know, you should probably stay home, right? Like, don't go out into the crowd. Don't go to the football game. Anybody watch the football game last night, Muhammad football? A few people out there, awesome. I watched it. Don't go to the football game. Like, the whole town is there. Don't go to the football game if you've got coronavirus. But she risks it all. The little she has left to risk, she puts on the line because of the faith she has in Jesus, that Jesus is who he says he is. And as she trembles at the feet of Jesus, revealing to him and to the crowd that she was the unclean person that had received his power through faith, Jesus responds with pure and perfect compassion to her in verse 34. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Healing for this woman. Like she's done with this condition. She's had it for 12 years. And it's done. It's over. Jesus has healed her. Her body is restored. God's kingdom come to her body. I think it's good for us to identify with this woman. To empathize with her. Like how she's feeling as she approached Jesus. That kind of like, Maybe she's still got some shame, nervousness, but full of faith. And then as she leaves, Jesus completely healed. I've never been in quite that same situation, a complete outcast. Well, maybe in high school, I might have I been that. Um, but no, she's a, an outcast. She's marginalized uh, by her community. She's told that she can't be around certain people. She can't come to the synagogue or to the temple to worship because of her condition. And now she's healed. What a life-changing encounter made possible by a risk of putting her faith in Jesus. And now we get back to our friend Jairus. Remember, he's in a rush. They're hurrying through the streets to get to his daughter who's on the very edge of death. So if you can imagine yourself as Jairus leading Jesus to your house with the crowds in tow and all of a sudden in this hurried, urgent moment, Jesus stops, looks around, and asks, who touched me? 
Jesus, if I was, if I was Jairus, I would say, Jesus, I'm not trying to be rude here, man, but we have got to go. We don't really have time to figure out who invaded your personal bubble. My daughter is dying. Let's go. And then Jairus sees this woman bow down before Jesus, just like Jairus did moments before, with the same faith that moments before Jairus had. And Jesus announces that because of her faith, her suffering is over. If I'm Jairus, I say, that is cool, awesome, Jesus. Let's go. We got to go now. And then this happens. Verse 35. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. I wonder in that moment where Jairus' faith was. It's over. It's too late. Maybe he's thinking, if only I would have asked Jesus earlier that morning at the beach. If only this woman wouldn't have interrupted us. But before he can tell Jesus to go home, that there's nothing they can do. My daughter's dead. Jesus says this. Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just have faith. Jesus said to him, after his daughter had died, don't be afraid, just have faith. I wonder what that would have been like. I mean, for me, it's over. Like, you can't heal a dead person, right? That's what I would have been thinking. Don't be afraid, just have faith. I wonder what that looks like in our own lives. When we're, when we're up against things that we feel like we can't overcome. Different situations where... We feel like our faith is just so small. Like I just have nothing left in this. Maybe it's your marriage. You have just a tiny bit of faith left. It's really hard. Maybe it's a, a certain situation with a, one of your children. You're just like, I don't, I don't know what to do here. Maybe it's a work situation. You just have a tiny bit of faith left in that situation that God's going to do what he set out to do. I mean, that's what Jairus saw. He saw that Jesus was coming to his house. He was setting out to do something. And then it seems like he just got interrupted. But Jesus encourages him and says, don't be afraid. Just have faith. So what does it look like in our context, in our situations, to not be afraid and to have faith? What does it look like for you to have faith? I think it goes back to that risk. I don't think we can move forward in faith without taking a risk? What is that risk in that situation that you have? Where you just have a little bit of faith left, but you need to take a risk and say, Jesus, I'm not going to be afraid. I trust you. I have faith in you. What is that risk going to look like for you? We see only this tiny snapshot of this woman's life and Jairus's life. But we get to see in these situations their faith in action. Did you notice their faith wasn't idle? For the woman, it was bowing down before Jesus. It was pushing through the crowds, just touching his robe. That was her faith. For Jairus, it started out with bowing at his feet and just asking Jesus for help. And then it continues as he chooses. He could have just said, no, Jesus, she's dead, it's over. But he continues to lead Jesus to his house. 
So he invites Jesus back into his home. We'll read on verse 37. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him, except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, Why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave, and he took the little girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened, and he told them to give her something to eat. Jesus is speaking my language there, like, give her something to eat. I love that that's included. Of all the things that Mark could have written about, he includes that part. Um, you know, I wonder where your, your fuel gauge is for your faith. Sometimes I drive around town um, with my fuel gauge, like, below empty. And sometimes I'll give the car back to Liz, and she'll be like, ah, do I have enough gas to get somewhere? I'm like, ah, yeah, you'll be fine. I'm always right. Have you run out of gas yet? Nope, she hasn't, but it frustrates her every time, so I can't do that. It's a habit I developed when I was 16. I was the youngest of three, and we all shared a car, and, you know, like I wasn't going to pay for gas. I was going to make my older siblings pay for gas, and so I'd return the car like way below E and force them to take a risk or to fill up the gas tank. They fill up the gas tank, and I always won. I wonder where your faith gauge is. Maybe it's not in your, maybe it is your whole life. Um, or maybe it's just one area of your life where your faith gauge is just on E. Maybe that, that faith gauge light that dings on, maybe that came on a long time ago and you're way below E by now. What would it look like for you to not be afraid, to take a risk, and to have faith. What is that? I can't tell you what that is in your situation. I think it's going to be different for each person what the Holy Spirit is calling you to do and what faith looks like for you. We saw what it looks like for Jairus. We saw what it looked like for the woman. We have plenty of uh, scriptural references all throughout the Bible that can tell us what faith looked like for each person. What does it look like for you? And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in, where we can ask, Holy Spirit, what does faith look like for me in this situation, in my marriage, in my parenting, at work? What does having faith in you look like when I feel like I don't have much left? In the words of Jesus, don't be afraid, just have faith. I want to ask Joe to come on up. Uh, can I have the mic there? I asked Joe to come up um, just to share his faith journey. Um, he had no idea what I was going to preach on, so it's not like we were trying to match this up. But um, Joe has a faith journey, just like many of us have a faith journey. And I just wanted him to share that with you. Um, and I think this is one of the ways that we can be encouraged in our faith to hear each other's stories. This is why we come to church, to be together, to be in community with each other, 
to hear each other's stories, to walk out this faith together. So, you go, Joe. Thank you. Yeah. Well, good morning, everyone. This does feel awkward standing up here talking in front of you, so just going to throw that out there. Um, I'll just quickly talk about who I am and um, then run you through my story of how I found Jesus. Uh, my folks bought a house out here in Muhammad in 1978, and um, I went all through school and through high school here at Muhammad. Um, I'm 47 years old. And I have a beautiful wife um, and two children. My wife, Tina, and I got married in 2001. And we have an 18-year-old um, who just started college at Parkland and a 14-year-old who just started high school here at Muhammad. Um, I was raised Catholic and attended Lady of the Lake Church until I was 18. And then at 18 years old, um, I started making my own decisions about what I wanted to do in life, and I decided that Jesus really wasn't a part of my, what I needed from life at that time. So I left. I stopped going to church. And um, for a very long time, I led a life of sin. Uh, like you would not believe <laughs> I've been in so many different situations that uh, I somehow escaped without harm. And in looking back now as a believer, I can see Jesus standing right there with me, helping me get through those times. But I didn't really know that that was what was happening to me at the time. I was leading my life. I was making pretty crazy choices. And uh, somehow I ended up meeting my wife and uh, started to settle down, but um, still did not feel that Jesus was important in my life. My father became sick with cancer in 2012. It was in October. It was right at this time of the year. I think it was right around Halloween that we learned that my dad had cancer. And the next week, uh, I learned that I was about to lose my job. And um, that happened. I lost my job. And then in February, I lost my father. And uh, anyway, he, um, with his passing, I received some money. And I decided to go back to school. And my wife decided to go back to work. And so I went back to school. I went to Parkland College and went and talked to the career counselor and decided that I was going to become an occupational therapy assistant. Now, is there anybody here who works in healthcare? One, two, three. It's a trip. <laughs> so I was inspired to do this because in this practice they work with children and my son is on the autism spectrum and I saw how much progress he was making with his 
occupational therapist. And so I decided I didn't want to do the work that I had been doing. I have this opportunity. I'm going to go back to school. And I was certain that I was going to work with kids. I wanted to work with kids. And so uh, through going through Parkling, I got accepted into the program. And part of my um, program was to do a 16-week rotation at Carl Hospital here in Champaign-Urbana. And I did that. And when I did that, I couldn't believe where I was. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I couldn't believe what I was doing. I graduated the program, and I was looking for a job. And Carl said that they needed somebody over in Bloomington. So I applied for the job. And before I knew it, I was working at Carl in Bloomington. And I was working with these patients every day. And it was hard. I was working with cancer patients, patients who have been in burn accidents or car accidents or strokes. It was very difficult. I found myself driving to work one hour a day and driving back one hour a day. And on my way there, I was afraid. Every day I would go to work afraid. I was afraid of what I was going to see. I was very doubtful of my own abilities. And it was during this time that I was so afraid I was in tears one day on my way to work. And I said the words to myself, or maybe out loud, I don't remember. Lord Jesus, if you're real, please give me some strength. Please help me through my day. And the next day, I did the same thing. And the next day, I did the same thing. And pretty soon, I decided that, well, maybe I should start listening or learning about who I'm praying to that's helping me get through this day. And I got on YouTube and started playing the Gospels on the way to work. I wanted to find out, who is this Jesus I am praying to? As a kid, I really didn't care. I was forced to go to church. And Father Wolner was a great priest over at Lady of the Lake. And, uh, but it didn't mean anything to me then. But now it suddenly did. And now I was starting to understand why Jesus came to this, to this earth. And I became a believer. And every day I, I find myself praying in thanksgiving for all the things that I have and for my patience and for the opportunity to work with these people and to overcome my fear through Jesus, to be able to extend some love and compassion to these people who so desperately need it. And it's still very hard, and I still go to work very afraid. But through the power of Jesus, I'm able to overcome, and I'm now discovering new things about myself. I can't believe I'm standing up here telling you this. <laughs> I'm learning something about myself right now. But um, so that is kind of the, the short of it. Um, and uh, yeah, so. Thanks. Sorry, I but your story. took longer than five minutes. <laughs> Peace. That's fine. So that is, uh, that's God's redemption in our lives. That is his kingdom at work. What did you say? You said like you're doing stuff that maybe you shouldn't be alive today. Is that some? Just da like dangerous stuff. 
and, and now like serving Jesus, I knew you were in rock bands for a little bit and now you're like playing uh, music for Jesus. I love this redemption in your life and I know that many of you have stories. I look forward to hearing them um, more in the future. And so what faith looked, if I can speak into your story, what faith looked like for him in that moment was just a prayer. Jesus, if you're real, help me through my day. What a step of faith that that took just to pray that one prayer. Worship team, you guys can come up. Um, will you guys stand with me as I pray? Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We know that you are who you say you are. And we have faith in that. And so that's why we sing worship to you. That's why we come to worship together. Jesus, I pray that uh, for those of us that are just weak in faith, like maybe we feel like Jairus did right after his daughter died. Like there's no hope. There's nothing left. We ask for a word of encouragement from you. Speak to our hearts. That we wouldn't be afraid, but that we would continue to have faith and follow you. Jesus, we love you. Amen. At Life Community Church, we want you to experience the powerful, life-changing love of God. To learn more, go to lifemohammed.org. lifemohammed.org.